Would you please open up your Bibles to uh, the book of First Chronicles, chapter 29. We read chapter 28 earlier. And for our sermon text, we're going to read a number of texts. You'll get tired of switching around in your Bible. But uh, our main text will be First Chronicles, chapter 29. Among the people of God, there are different gifts that are needed at different times. At times, there are warriors needed, and at times, there are prophets needed. At other times, there are administrators and managers, and at other times, builders are needed. Many of us that grew up in that wonderful time known as the 60s, Remember the bird's song, uh, There's a Season, and they put to music this text from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. Now, there's a degree to which on a day when we take a vote as to whether or not to fulfill the plans that have been in process for three and a half years now, uh, that will always be a day that is somewhat intimate. It's a day that is really a family day. And so this sermon is going to have some history. Those of you that weren't here at the time, uh, this is your heritage Uh, If you're adopted into this flock, this is what those people sitting around the pews with you, probably about 50% of them have gone through in the past. But I'm going to describe it a little bit so that all of us have our shared memory of how this church began. Seven years ago, about 100 souls decided that it was time to build a church that here in Bloomington would be a visible manifestation of the eternal kingdom of God, a family of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ called out from the wicked world to be holy other, to be holy, to be the adopted sons and daughters of God. And this church was intentionally planted not to be a social club. I've I've told you how I once heard my brother-in-law say something that once he said it, I thought probably it's been said millions of times, but it struck me the truth. He said, everybody likes to be religious. Well, our goal as a church from the beginning has not been to be religious. Our goal has been to be a church that is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. And we realize how bodacious it is to say that. We realize that to try to build a church that's going to honor God and his word has been the goal of many and the failure of almost as many through the centuries. Uh, Certainly, the Roman Catholics did not set out to build a church that was a temple to the Pope. But over this progress of many centuries, you ended up having indulgences sold. You had people being told that souls would spring free in purgatory if they just dropped the coin through the box. And we can all agree that nobody intentionally planned for that to be the kind of church that would be built. But there is a law in physics... uh, I don't know if there's a second or third, but you know what I'm talking about. It's entropy. Everything tends to uh, decline. 
And so today we see all around us in the Western world, particularly in Europe, churches that are nothing more than museums. And often they are maintained at the public expense as museums, literally. If you go to Westminster Abbey today, you get to pay to go in. Um, and in America, this is also true. Many of you grew up in churches where, as uh, a gentleman told me a couple of days ago when we were having dinner together, he grew up in a, in a mainline church where he never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly a church is not a church where the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't preached. So we set out to try to build a church that would not be one more uh, temple to civic religion, that sort of combination of the American flag and Jesus that is so common in this country where it's more important what car you drive when you come than where, where your heart is, right? And we knew that the only way that it would happen is if the Holy Spirit blessed this work. Um, we were determined that this would not be a congregation of good religious people, but of slaves of Jesus Christ. People who honored the word. People who didn't say they honored the word, but people who really honored the word. People who didn't look at Scripture and accept those parts of Scripture that seemed palatable, that went down easily. But people who loved the Word of God precisely at the point where it was, as it's described in the Old Testament, a hammer, a fire. People who would love that text of Scripture as much as the text that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, in preparation for the building of this church, we saw ourselves the need to clean up. We didn't think that we should clean up the community first, but we believed that when it says in Peter, let judgment begin and let it begin in the house of God, that that meant not hypothetically, corporately, but me. And so there was a great deal of fasting and prayer at the very beginning of this church for the first couple of years. Tonight, when you come back, not if you come back, um, you do need to be here tonight, all of you. Um, tonight, we're going to show pictures of the places where we did that work. One of the places was the picnic shelter over at Bryan Park. And morning after morning, early in the morning, you'd find, I would guess on average, somewhere around 15 people gathered there for prayer. Um, the year before that, we gathered oftentimes two or three times a week in the early morning for prayer. We went through a time of uh, fasting. Uh, we had a solemn assembly. We devoted ourselves to the Lord. And as we did that, the Lord showed us individually and in our families and in our marriages and in our church sin that we had to deal with. It wasn't a nice thing. And those of you who came into this church as, as a graph from Grace Covenant know that the process of you coming into this church from Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church was a process of learning your sin, your failures. And it's beautiful how the Lord gives us new life out of a confession of our failures. And that's what the Lord did with us. And so we got together and we determined that we were going to be committed to the Lord and to His Word. That we weren't going to throw out parts of the Word that the Indiana University Sociology Department doesn't like. All right? that we weren't going to be postmodern deconstructionists when it came to uh, how we read the Bible, each, each man and each woman having their own uh, meaning, depending upon where they are in their particular faith journey. All right? That's irony. It's cynicism. I, 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 I hate that. All right? 
<laughs> That's not what Scripture is. It's, uh, I used to say to the postmodernists that I used to be a pastor with in the Presbyterian Church USA, they'd say to me, well, you can say, make the Bible say anything you want. If you ever quoted Scripture as a text to prove any particular point of truth, in a conversation, the immediate response would be, you can make the Bible say anything you want. I used to say to them, okay, should we, you know, should we handle Mark Twain like that? You know, Mark Twain writes that, that Jim walked to the edge of the raft, dove into the Mississippi River, and surfaced 10 feet out. Does that mean that the DC-10 taxied off, out the runway at O'Hare, uh, put its flaps up, and took off into the night sky? Well, no, it says the river. I mean, you get my point. Words have meanings. And authors chose specific words with meanings. We believe that the Bible is a book where the Holy Spirit inspired not just the concepts resonant in the words, but the very words themselves. And so this church was going to be a church that followed the Word of God in its particularities, in its specific words, in its specific commands. We aren't going to go around saying to each other, well, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Or, well, Christianity Today says that doesn't apply anymore. But we're going to be a church that honored the Word, like the Bereans, it says, that are, were more noble in the book of Acts because why? Everything that was said from the pulpit, they examined, they scrutinized to see if it was true. So think about this. It's going to be a church that's not civic religion, it's going to be a church that knows the difference between the kingdom of the United States and the kingdom of God. It's going to be a church that honors the word of God in all its particularities. It's going to be a church that doesn't flee from repentance and acknowledgement of sin. And then another thing, it's going to be a church that does practice church discipline. Now, that is a real hurdle today because, as uh, Alan Bloom says in the closing of the American Mind, the only value America has left is the value of making sure everybody gets along with each other. And all of us know that when you practice discipline in a home, uh, oftentimes uh, the mother and father don't get along too well with each other, right? A lot of fights in the home over discipline of children, right? As a matter of fact, it's the largest breakup of, of second marriages after divorce is conflict over how, whether or not to discipline children. So, we, hearing the word of God, this command, where it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This text ends in, in, in verse 13. And so, you know, predictably, being a church that wanted to honor the Word of God in all its particularities, and looking back through all the history of the church and seeing that always the Protestant church has practiced church discipline, where it has been a true church, we said, we're not going to allow the environment of the United States to cause us to forsake this. We're not going to do that. And so, from the pulpit, when we come to worship, we are always disciplined. Uh, a, a former musician who got carpal tunnel, tunnel or whatever it is, syndrome, and stopped being able to play his instrument, uh, 
and who was very bright, was trying to figure out why we've had such a high number of music students all the time, always at this church. Huge proportion of music students. And he, being Mark Kuntz, uh, made this observation. He said, you know, as a musician, every week you pay somebody to go and sit and be critiqued. And he said, I think musicians expect that if they're not critiqued when they come to church Sunday morning, that uh, they haven't gotten their money's worth. Now, it's very interesting. And I have believed ever since I've heard that, that that's probably the closest answer that we have. Uh, but we expect the pulpit to discipline us. We don't want the pulpit to just give us a nice thought for the week. Right? We don't want McLeight from the pulpit. We want to be disciplined. Why? Because we believe we're pilgrims on the way to heaven. And we believe that eternity is infinitely more important than this present day. We live as sojourners. Or, as uh, uh, Scott Clampett so delicately put it, as nerds. All right? Now, this work was hard, and it took a number of years. We can get impatient when uh, the, the hardest part of cleaning is so bad that uh, we can't get to the fun parts of cleaning. When I was at seminary, I worked often for Service Master, the cleaning company, and uh, one day I picked a humdinger of a job. Uh, they, they asked me to get people up at seminary to come down with me. And so I got a bunch of guys, and we went down to downtown Boston, and on one of the little side streets, just a few blocks from Park Street Church in the Common, um, was a little... A large but a small doorway. In other words, a small space but a very large door in the small space. And we went in there and it was a Roman Catholic church. And it was a Roman Catholic church that had had candles smoking in it. I have absolutely no idea how long it would take to build up the crud that was everywhere in that church. I mean, the, the soot was mind-boggling. And we spent a day, I don't know how many of us, trying to clean this soot off that church. And uh, to me, that's, that, that's a good image of a nasty job, and it's interesting because it's in a church, of cleaning. And the cleaning goes on and on and on and on and on. My wife recently decided she was going to redo our kitchen, right? Well, there was wallpaper. And some of you have had the experience of taking off wallpaper and finding more wallpaper. And all you want to do is paint. But you have to go down and down and down and down. And a lot of the last seven years of our church have been going down, 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 down. When you first take on many jobs, you think they're going to be relatively easy. And you're committed to doing it right. And you realize that the preliminary stages are really the most important stages, what we call in building the foundation, right? And laying the foundation is very important. Well, none of us are really very patient with laying the foundation. And over the course of the last seven years, sometimes the discipline from the pulpit and the additional discipline of sitting in Sunday school classes and the additional discipline of talking with each other after the services, because all these places are places where we exhort one another because the Bible commands it, sometimes it isn't enough. Sometimes people get in so deep to their selfishness and rebellion against the Lord that it has to go to the board of elders. And sometimes when an elder goes and talks to them, instead of repenting, they harden their hearts. And you know what? 
When the job is that bad, guess what? Even the elders grow weary. And the elders don't like dealing with cases like that. It happens once or twice a year. All right? And it is hard work. And the elders look at each other. Now, they don't literally say this, but they look at each other and say, I thought we were going to build a church. And this doesn't look like building a church. It looks like tearing it down. Same things that a mother says to a father when he disciplines his children. All right? Hey, I thought we were going to love our children. He says, I am. Pow. And she says, no, you're not. (laughs) All right? This is what goes on in an elders board. And uh, we have, and I have said this a number of times to the elders. Look, either we believe that God has commanded discipline and we're going to practice it, or we will not be a biblical church. Just because everybody else throws it out and says they're a church doesn't make it so. And it's hard to have faith at that point. It's hard to... Let me read it again. Do what it commands us to do here in the text of Scripture. It's very hard not to associate with any so-called brother, in other words, somebody who says they're a Christian, but is immoral, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay? Now, if you're here this morning and you've never heard such a thing from a pulpit, you have been robbed by all of your pastors of God's truth. Um, This is scriptural. I just read it. And if it was true for the early church, it's true today. Everybody wants to go back to the early church. And what do they always read? They always read the texts that talk about how they sold all their possessions and gave to each other as they had needs. All right? Okay, fine. Let's take that. We do that here. And it also was the church that didn't associate with people who were greedy and called themselves Christians. Now, right there, we got a problem, don't we? Okay? But this is our commitment as a church. And so we go along and occasionally we lose a family because of discipline. And we go, oh, God, do we have to do this? Nobody else does it. They can go to any church they want, no questions asked, and come to the Lord's table, and they don't give a rip that these people have rejected discipline. Can't we give it up? How can we build a church and practice church discipline? Please, God, can we give it up? And the Word of God says no. And we are being led by elders who are, yes, gender-specific, man enough, to submit to the Word of God. Okay? And we hope that this will be the commitment of the future. Now, how long does it take to build a church that has this kind of bedrock commitment, like Manhattan and the skyscrapers? How long does it take to build a church that is going to see this commitment go past the present pastor? Okay? How long? One of my heroes is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Two-volume biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. The man that's currently the pastor of Martin Lloyd-Jones Church is a man that Martin Lloyd-Jones wouldn't recognize as having even anything like a similar ministry that's faithful to the word that he had in London. Martin Lloyd-Jones, soon after he died, his church went into decay. Should a church be a product of an individual? 
When Jim Boyce dies, should 10th Presbyterian Church go into decay? If Tim Bailey and Rob Hooper leave this church, should this church go into decline and decay? No. That's why we're Presbyterian. Presbyterian meaning not that you baptize infants, but rather meaning that you're governed by elders, presbyteros in Greek. In other words, this church has believed that it should not be a preaching point for a pastor where people show up and go home, but it should be a household of faith led by a plurality of elders. This morning, I sat down in the pew and I noticed a bunch of pages next to me and I thought maybe there were some things I meant to bring today and they weren't. And I flipped them over and I looked at them and it's a a whole bunch of stacks of receipts from my business expenses of the past five months along with a memo to David Canfield saying, David, here are your copies of my business expenses listed out. Okay? And I thought, ooh, I'm glad I found this and not anybody else. And then I thought, and I'm thinking now, this is our discipline as a church. An elder knows and looks at the individual receipts of our pastors and our staff. You understand that? Now, you take that little thing and you spread it through the whole church. We believe in having a group of men who say to each other, looking each other in the eyes, We will be faithful to Scripture in the government of this church. And it's not resident in the pastor. Now, how long does it take to build that group of men? Do you think it happens the first year or the second or the third? I think it happens when they hit about the fourth time that they have to discipline and don't want to do it, and they look in each other's eyes and say, we will be faithful. Now, maybe not. Maybe the fifth time. But you understand, going back to this Catholic church with all the soot, it's not going to be prepared for the building all right, until all of the cleaning goes on. And a lot of the cleaning is in the will of the pastors and the elders and the deacons. right? Are we willing to obey the Lord? Yes, we repented of the past, but many of you have had the experience of having a besetting sin. You repent of it. And the Lord says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say, Lord... I know you forgave me, but why aren't you cleansing me? Well, the same thing is true of of elders and pastors. You go through churches, and in the churches, you commit yourself to 1 Corinthians 5, that you're going to be faithful to it. And then three months later, something hits you, and you say, well, you know, let's let this one slide. And so you have to build a track record in a church of obedience to the Word of God. The first time your son says, yes, ma'am, when his mother tells him to set the table, instead of sitting there at the computer and playing computer games for the next five minutes, doesn't cause you to fail to listen to his response tomorrow and the day after that, right? You want to see a track record of obedience to the Lord on the part of your son. And so a lot of the first seven and a half years of this church have been setting up a track record of obedience to this text in 1 Corinthians. So you say, well, why do you keep choosing 1 Corinthians? Well, because that is the place that submission to the Word of God is tested in evangelical churches today. Evangelical churches are filled with pastors and elders who, when one of their children on the elders' board commits fornication or adultery or has an unbiblical divorce, not a word is said in the elders' board. And that 
is denying the command of Scripture, let judgment begin and let it begin in the house of God. And I know this because I've had elders and pastors confess this to me. I mean, you know, we talk just like dentists talk, just like engineers talk, right? Just like musicians talk about their gigs, okay? Pastors and elders talk. And I know the consciences of the men that I work with. Not one of us feels clean on this matter of disciplining our flock. How many of you who are fathers and mothers feel that you can stand before God and say, we have been faithful in the discipline of our children? It's a laughable thing. (laughs) You know, you try, you work at it, you know, you repent, you try, you work at it, you repent, you retire, you work at it, you repent. That's the nature of this difficult work of discipline. So, as this church was being built theologically, We grew impatient. As a congregation, we grew impatient. As elders, as deacons, as the wives, the older Titus II women, our women's ministry committee, we all grew impatient. Why? Well, because while all this work of biblical faithfulness was being done, we were meeting in rooms, Tim Wagner's class this last year, that were 40 degrees upstairs in the barn without heat this winter. And, you know, that's not fun. It's not fun for me. It's not fun for Tim because he's there longer than I am because I get there late. And it's not fun for the children. And you can just take that and multiply it across the church. How do you think Cindy has felt, Cindy Sparks, who's uh, Mrs. Kitchen Food for us, how do you think she's felt going back? And if you've never been back there, you all owe her the respect of going back and looking at what she and the people that help her have been dealing with. The deacons putting together the Lord's Supper. It's nasty back there. It's a little corridor and they call it a kitchen, right? How many of you have waited in line for washrooms, right? Embarrassing. Everybody in the foyer sees you standing there in line waiting, right? Hi, welcome to Church of the Good Shepherd. You know? And then we go into things like our sound system, our lighting system. We go into... Uh, matters of not even having our children at the same place their parents are during Sunday school. And then we haven't even talked about the nursery. We go into our nursery, and our nursery has no external window. All right? And it's dark. It doesn't have good ventilation. And that's nasty when certain children do things that they're common, they commonly do. So we're looking at this, and we're saying, you guys, we've got to do something about this. And The elders and the deacons and the older women of the church are busy disciplining the flock. Come on, you guys, we've got to do something. First things first. And you know what's first? Taking the soot off the walls, peeling off all the layers of wallpaper. Okay? The foundation. The foundation of a church is not the concrete that's put on a pad. The foundation of a church is a plurality of elders who look each other in the eye and say, by God's power, we will be faithful. That's a church. Now, a church always has a home. And if you look at the Bible, and you look at book after book after book, you will see the theme of the physical house of the worship of God's people. It's all through Scripture. And, in fact, heaven is described very specifically about the nature 
of the physical attributes of the worship of God in heaven. All right? And so it is fitting and right that we grow impatient looking at the work of doctrine and truth looking at the work of fellowship, who we welcome and who we don't and how we welcome them, it's fitting that we get impatient and that we want to move into the issue of the physical structure. Now, is there anything in Scripture to speak to that? And the answer is yes. And and the question is, well, why? Why would Scripture address that? Well, the answer is because... All through Scripture, the people of God, as they are devoted to His worship, have a desire to build a house for that worship. And the most obvious example in Scripture is the example of David and his son Solomon. Solomon's temple was the glory of Israel. The temple was more glorious than Solomon and his own palace. Now, how did that temple come about? Well, the story is very instructive for us. David, who was the warrior king, decided that he was going to build himself an incredible house. Okay? Now, why did I start there? Why didn't I just start with the temple? What does it have to do with David's palace, right? Well, listen. Here's the account. It says, now it came about when the king, this is David, 2 Samuel 7, don't turn, Now, when it came about, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So David, being a typical man, provides for himself very, very well immediately. All right? And then all of a sudden his conscience kicks in. He goes, Oh, wait, 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 there's something twisted about this. I've got a very nice house, and God has a tent. Now, now maybe, maybe it's a, you know, a backpacking tent that's very, very nice. It has a good rain fly. It never leaks. Uh, and maybe it even has like a, an equipment mesh attic where you can keep important things. And, and maybe it's made by like North Face or Sierra Design, but it's still a tent, right? And this is twisted. Why would I provide for my house and not have provided for the house of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have asked yourselves that question? I did something this last week in thinking about this meeting tonight, and that is I figured out the value of the homes of some of us in this church. Last night we had a a number of young people over to our house uh, for dinner. And so I was telling them what's going to come up at the meeting tonight. And when I told them the figure that the elders were asking the congregation to approve borrowing, I said to them, now, you realize that that's less than, let's see, what would it be? One, two, five, six, seven. I said, you realize that that's less, that that's only slightly less than ten times the value of this house of, of mine here. And it was hilarious. I asked them all to guess, and these were college students, some of them, or all of them. Yeah, all of them. And I asked them to guess the value of my home. And it was hilarious. And most of them had absolutely no idea what the value of my home was. But anyhow, I said, you realize that this is only about ten times the value of my home. Now think about this, people. This is has a very real practical application to us as a church, right? Take the value of your home and the person sitting next to you in the pew, all right, 
and add them all up and think about the connection between that and our physical house for our church. This is what David did. David looked at his house and he said, it is not right that I have provided so well for myself and that I'm having God's worship resident in in a tent. Okay? So he set out to do it. Now, if you know the story, and if you don't, I'll just tell it to you. The, the story is that God does not let David do it. At first, Nathan the prophet says yes to David, and then Nathan, uh, it turns out that God says no to David. God says, David, you've been a man of war. You have blood on your hands. That was your job, but I'm not going to let you build the temple. But David did everything but build the temple. And this is where we come to our text. He was not allowed to build it, but he had his son Solomon coming into the position of king. And God did say that Solomon, his son, could build this house. All right, And we read the account of David and the work he did for this temple in 1 Chronicles 29. Then King David, verse 1, said to the entire assembly... My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antinomy and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, not his house, but the house of his God, David's delight, even though he wouldn't see it, even though he'd die before it was built, he took delight in it. All right. In my delight for the house of God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple, namely... 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings of gold for the things of gold and of silver for the things of silver. That is for all the work done by the craftsmen. Okay? Now, David, very nice house. Walls of cedar. And that's their way of saying it was a palace, right? He says, you know, my conscience isn't right. Because while I'm living in a palace, the people are waiting in line in the foyer to use the bathroom. Okay, He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my wealth and I'm going to set it aside for the temple because I take delight in that temple, that temple that I will never see because I'll die before it's built. All right? So he does it. And he does it in the sight of the people. We're all so squeamish about our money because we're idolaters. We love our money. And so we want everything secret. There's absolutely nothing secret here. Do you recognize that? David is very specific and he ticks off the things he's done. All right? Now, Meryl and I, by the end of this year, Lord willing, will have given $30,000 towards the new church, and that's over and beyond our tithes and our offerings. And you say, how could the pastor do that? Well, because the Bible has a precedent for it. Remember, Jesus sat in the temple treasury watching how much different people gave and called his disciples to examine how much they gave as they put it in the offering. Now, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but I'm leading, and I'm telling you I think we need to build So I think it's completely fitting that I tell you how much my wife and I have given to this work. Okay? Now, you, 
wait a second, is there a precedent for this? Well, look at your Bibles. It says what? It goes through this list, and then it says that David looked at them and said, see the end of verse 5? Do you see it? Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? David listed what he had done, and then he looked at the people, and he said, all right, which of you is willing to set yourself apart to the Lord and do the same? Okay? That's what David did. And so what was the response of the people? It says, Then the rulers of the father's household and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers over the king's work offered how? Willingly. They offered willingly. And for the service of the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of brass and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of Jehiel the Gershonite. So here we have it. David's sitting in his palatial residence and he says it ain't right that God's in a tent. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build. God says, no, you're not going to build. Your son's going to build. David says, but I'm delighted in the house that my son will build. And so here's my wealth. Bam. All right, his heart belonged to God. And then he says to the people, now look at the wealth I just gave. Count it up. This is what I've done. Now, which of you is willing? And it says that the people were willing and that they themselves gave, count it up. Okay? Now, notice what happens next. It then says in verse 9, then David did it, the people did it, the leaders did it, then what? Then the people what? Rejoiced. It doesn't say that the people were so tired that they all looked at each other and began to cry over the wealth that they'd lost. It says that the people had a party. They boogied. Why? You know why? Because the people loved God and loved his house. That's why. The house of God, the people of God, the place of the worship of God had their affection. Can you imagine a man who would have gone and hawk up to his eyeballs to build his house, and when the property's built and the house is built and the fireplace has a fireplace burning and brings his wife across the threshold and the kids are sitting around the floor and he begins to moan and groan about how hard it was to provide this for them. Never happened. Now, what happened here was then the people rejoiced and why did they rejoice? Well, it depends on your Bible. But in the NIV, it says this, and I think this is the sense of it. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders. In other words, God gives certain people prominence in any human organization. President Bush has prominence. Chancellor Wells had prominence. Uh, here in the church, we have elders and deacons and, and pastors. They have prominence. And the people take delight as those leaders show themselves cheerfully giving to God. Now, I'm not going to give you the amounts, but let me tell you, your leaders have cheerfully given to God. I know the amounts of some of them. And as usual, uh, the vast majority of the work of a church is done by a tiny group of people and it's perfectly fitting that those that God has given the most wealth to 
themselves give the most wealth to the building of the temple of God. And our leaders have done that. Now, there are some elders who don't have that kind of ability. But there are some elders that do. And there are some people who have that kind of ability who aren't elders. And those in our church who are prominent by virtue of wealth, guess what? Just like in the book of Acts, they have sold their possessions. They have sold their land and they've brought it in and put it in the treasury. Okay? That's what's happened. And so it says, They had offered willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart, and King David also rejoiced greatly. So you've got a big party. You've got the king parting, you've got the leaders parting, you've got the people parting, you've got the people rejoicing that the king and the leaders have taken these steps and have done this wonderful act of love to God. And then it says, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you do exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. Okay, get it. You see what's going on here? David, nice house, builds it, says, Oh, no. God's house is, is a tent. So he gives money, then he gets the leaders to give money, and then the people give money. They all give money. They all give jewels. They all give precious metals. And then they have a party, and they rejoice. And then David leads them in worship. And note the center of his worship. The center of his worship is, hey, all this stuff we gave, it came from you, God. He doesn't say, God, we've given it everything we have, and and I hope you see everything that we've given it, that we, that we have. And I hope you recognize what a sacrifice this is for us. Uh-uh. They say, hey, listen, we only did what you had first given to us. We only gave the treasure that you had, had bequeathed us, right? In other words, their attitude was much like the attitude that our Lord Jesus tells us of in Luke... Um, Chapter 17, verses 7 to 9, where we read this. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? We are the slaves of God. When we get done, if we give the Lord our lives, let alone our wealth, we have only given him what he has given first to us. And so it is not our job to praise God that he has given such righteousness to us. It's our job to praise God that he has allowed us to give back to him as an act of worship what he has first given to us. Now, I'm not going to continue to finish the chapter because this is the sense that I wanted to communicate. But I want to ask you today, does the Bible apply to our lives? Is it still fitting that those who love God love the assembly of his people? Is it still fitting that the assembly of his people have a a physical location that they gather to worship in? Is it still fitting that there is some balance, some proportionality between the homes that we have and the house for the church of Jesus Christ 
where the means of grace are given to lost souls? Is it still fitting that we would be led in this by our pastors and elders and deacons? Is it still fitting that they would be specific to us saying how much is needed and what they themselves have specifically done? I mean, the parallels are so clear. Now, one last question. Why would I be so audacious, so foolish as to preach so specifically on an issue that the congregation is going to vote on? I'll tell you the answer to that. The answer is that I believe that a new church building has been something that the Lord has given us item after item after item after item of direction year after year and has provided everything we need to do it. And so as I look back on our history as a congregation, what I see is a path that heads in a particular direction. And that path is marked not by my will or yours, but that path is marked by the goodness and grace of God. All right? I'll list them off tonight. We'll have a presentation up on our new screen. All right? We'll do it right. So come tonight to see. But I'll tell you, just using one example, and to me, it's the one that hit me this last week. Everything that we have needed, every step of the process, has been provided by the Lord. And all in the same direction, namely building on Bill Forney's farmette down by the traffic circle. So now, this week, because of legalities, it is time for us to break ground. All right? So this week, we called the congregational meeting a few weeks ago. This has already been delayed a couple of years, and I'll explain that tonight. That the elders two years ago thought that year, and we wrote it in the annual report, that that year we would begin building. It just gets delayed and delayed and delayed. But now, guess what? The Lord has brought us to the lip, to the edge. All right? And here's what's interesting to me. Tonight, we're going to come to you as a congregation with a proposal that we go ahead. And that proposal is going to involve money beyond the money that you have given. And that will have to be taken as debt if we agree to do that. Now, did any of you notice what the Fed did this week? They lowered the interest rate to the lowest point since 1950. And I was looking at that. You know, they were saying it was going to happen. And I was thinking of that on a national level. What does that have to do with us? Well, you know what? This week it hit me. Just because something's cosmic does not mean that it is not God's specific kindness to us. You know, when the waters backed up in the Red Sea and they backed up on the Jordan River, it was a cosmic thing. But to the Israelites, it was the moment they set their foot into the riverbed and found it dry. Scientists would like to explain this as just being some weird, you know, collusion of all kinds of like happenstance oddities of nature. But God said that it was his provision for his people. And so tonight I'm going to go through our cairns of remembrance. I'm going to go through everything that the Lord has done, all the prayers, all the work. And I believe that this is the will of the Lord for us at this time. But as I said last week, I also believe that the Lord has arranged it such that the people of a congregation have to confirm the judgment of their elders at key points. And in our church, 
It's the taking on of more than $50,000 in debt. It's selling property. It's adopting the budget. It is who will be elders. Elders can't appoint elders. You have to vote on that. It's calling pastors. And so this is one of those places that we believe that you as a congregation must express your will and your sense of what the Holy Spirit's calling us. Now, there are many things that we can argue about. We can argue about the best way of handling the additional financial needs. It might be that somebody tonight, and we have people that are capable of this, would just come in with a check and would pay for the whole thing. And then we wouldn't have to take on debt. It may be that we would decide to limit our debt to this amount or that amount. It may be as a congregation we'll decide that we're not going to take on debt. But I want you to hear the word of God. And I don't want any of us to come into this thinking this is just a decision about money and buildings. It's not. It's a decision about God. Because this place is the place that we gather to worship him. And the affection that it has from us is demonstrable by our tangible financial commitment to it. And we wish that we could just say, I love the church. And that would be all that it would take. But God's pleased that there's tangible connections between our lips and our actions. So come back tonight. don't want any of you missing. That's an order, and I don't give them often. And it's not a biblical order. But would you please, just because I'm Papa Bear, come back tonight. <laughs> okay? Let's pray.